So our first passage, Romans 6 from verse 1 through until verse 6. This is God's word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our next passage is in Colossians 2. Just a few pages over, 15 or 20 pages, depending on your Bible. In Colossians 2, from verses 11 to 15. Colossians 2, 11 to 15. In him, that is in Christ, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead, In your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And our last passage will be in 1 Peter 3, toward the end of your Bibles. In 1 Peter chapter 3, from verse 18 to verse 22. 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word. So these are three passages that we will use today to look at this topic of baptism. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw this movie. About 20 years ago, there was a movie called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And uh, there's a um, famous scene in it uh, to do with baptism. The, The basic premise of the movie is that there are these three prison escapees and there's this scene where these prison escapees are down by a river and uh, it seems like out of nowhere, all of a sudden, masses, I mean, like hundreds of people in white robes start walking down to the river because there's going to be a baptism. And there's a preacher there who is baptizing these people and it's uh, with the a bit Hollywood 
um, cinematography. It's all sort of um, portrayed as this transcendent experience. They all seem to be glowing. And uh, as they're all getting baptized, one of the prison escapees uh, is captivated by what's going on. And almost uh, without him realizing it, he is uh, just thrust toward the preacher and he walks through the water. And without a word being said, all of a sudden the preacher baptizes him. And then this prison escapee gets up and he says to his other two escapees, well, that's it, boys, I've been baptized. The preacher said, uh, my transgressions and sins have been washed away. So it's the straight and narrow from here on out. And it's this uh, quite comical picture of uh, really an overly simplistic view of baptism as if to say, well, is, is that it? Is that all that has to happen? There was no conversation. No one knew who the person was. He just got dunked in water and said that he was, all of his sins and transgressions were washed away. And if you're anything like me, if you grew up in a non-Christian environment where your views of Christianity were informed almost entirely by TV shows and movies, then you could likewise have a very simplistic, even to use a theological pun, a shallow view of baptism. And we don't want a shallow view of baptism. We want a deep, or you might say immersive view of baptism so that we rightly understand what baptism actually is. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at a definition of baptism and how we understand that, and then look at the symbolism of baptism and look at these pictures of baptism. Now, the first part will be a little bit technical, uh, but bear with me, and we will get to the beautiful pictures that we see um, in the sacrament of baptism. So let me start firstly with what is baptism? Baptism is an ordinance of the Lord Jesus Christ administered through the church to those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus, whereby the believer is immersed in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This ordinance is an outward sign of the believer's union with Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. So there are two main sentences in there. The first one a bit bigger. Let's cover that first and break that down. Then we will look at the symbolism. The way I want to look at this first part of the sentence is by answering four questions. Who gives it? That is, who gives baptism? Who receives it? How is it administered? And where did it come from? Where's its foundation? So those are the four questions. Who gives it? Who receives it? How is it administered? Where did it come from. So firstly, who gives baptism? There are two parts to this first part. I hope that's not too confusing. Two parts to this first part of who gives baptism. The first part is that Jesus, of course, gives baptism. So notice in the definition, it is ordained by Jesus Christ. That is to say, he decrees it. He, in fact, commands baptism. It's given by Jesus to his church, uh, commanded to the early disciples to baptize followers in the name of Jesus, uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus commands it. He gives it to his disciples. We, as the flow on of the early disciples, receive that same command. So a popular passage is, of course, Matthew 28. We think of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, where Jesus says to his uh, disciples, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, 
the reason I say baptism is a command, Jesus commands it, though we will look at how baptism doesn't necessarily save us, but it's commanded because it's a picture of what ought to have happened within us. Baptism is commanded because in the Great Commission, and here's where this is 30 seconds of something that's a bit technical, but it's important to understand. A lot of people say, rightly so, that the emphasis in the Great Commission is to make disciples. And that's because uh, the, the language there in the original language is the, the idea of making disciples is the emphasis of that passage. That's the command. Everything around it are these things called participles. They're just joining words that are connected to the main point of make disciples. But because making disciples is an imperative, that is, Jesus says, with force, make disciples. Make disciples. How do you make disciples? You baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you teach them to observe all that I have commanded. That's what it looks like. Everything that's connected carries the same force as that main verb there, which is to make disciples. Therefore, baptism is a command that Jesus gives. It is the duty of the body of Christ, which is the church, to administer baptism. So there is no isolation or disconnection from the local church in baptism, which is why if you've ever witnessed perhaps baptisms at some sort of Christian youth camp are a terrible idea because there's no actual church there. There's no sort of leadership. It's not a good thing. It's, just a, it's an abuse of baptism. We, of course, don't have an isolated baptism as though you're just in a bathtub baptizing yourself. It's to do, it's through the local church. So who gives baptism? Jesus gives baptism and it is administered through the local church. Jesus commands it. It is given through the local church. The next part is to who receives baptism. So who are the recipients of baptism? So we've got that first part. Who gives it? Jesus gives it. It's administered through the church and it's given to those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ. Now, here is where we as Christians have a bit of an in-family disagreement, not so much within this church, but within the wider Christianity where there are typically two fields here, two camps of pedo-baptists. Just think of pediatrician to do with children. Pedo-baptists are those who baptize infants. And then credo-baptists, think of making a creed, a confession, consciously saying something, that's baptizing believers. And we can say that faithful Christians fall on both sides of this camp. But we in this church, being a Reformed Baptist church, hold to the reality that baptism is given to those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ. Baptism is given to believers. So one passage to look at in this is in Acts 2. In Acts 2, Peter uh, gives his first real sermon, this Pentecost sermon, and the response to Peter's sermon by people who are cut to the heart, they say, what must we do to be saved? Peter, what must we do? And Peter's response is to say, repent and be baptized. That's what you must do. Repentance is, of course, a conscious decision to change one's mind. That's the idea of repentance, either a turning away or a conscious decision to change one's mind. So Peter is calling them to repent, something that you must be conscious 
of. Now, Peter does go on to say in verse 39 of Acts chapter 2, for the promise, so he says, repent and be baptized for the promise, that is the promise of God of salvation, is to you and your children and for all who are far off. And so sometimes people say, aha, to your children. So you must baptize children. But let's, of course, look at what the passage actually says. The promise is to you, your children, and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. That's the qualifier that Peter gives. These three camps, you, your children, everyone who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. That's the qualifier of what he's saying of these three camps. How do we know if someone is called? They will respond. That's how we know. They will respond to that call. We've just seen it in John 10 of Jesus as the good shepherd coming to call his sheep out. And he says, those who are, who are my sheep will hear my voice and they will follow me. They will come. So we wouldn't baptize those who are far off. Notice in those three camps that Peter gives of you, your children, and those who are far off. We wouldn't baptize those who are far off unless it became clear that the grace of God was drawing them near. Likewise, we wouldn't baptize children unless it became clear that the grace of God was actually awakening them to respond. Given that children has quite a large group, you could be a 14-year-old child. And I think if you're responding to the call of of, uh, the need to repent and turn to the Lord, then you should be baptized. So that's the qualifier here. Everyone whom the Lord God is calling to himself. And notice in verse 41, Peter says, uh, rather Luke, who's writing Acts, records that everyone who received the word of the Lord was baptized. Those who received the word of the Lord. How do we know someone receives the word of the Lord? Well, they respond. They repent and turn to the Lord. So the precedent we see in Scripture is of conscious believers receiving the word and being baptized. That's who it is given to. Thirdly, how is it administered? This is to do with how one is baptized. Should we just get out a hose and wet people or sprinkle them? We believe baptism is by immersion. That's literally the the word baptized means to immerse or to plunge or to dip. But the, the very clear picture is of going under going under the water. So in Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, the beautiful story of Philip the evangelist coming to him and the Ethiopian eunuch is convicted. And he says to Philip, look, here is some water. Uh, What's stopping me from being baptized? Now he was a eunuch of uh, the, the, seems like the royal family. He probably had some water with him that could have been sprinkled on him. But his response is to say, oh, there's some water. There's a source of water. Let me go under. What's stopping me from being baptized? Or in John chapter 3, John the Baptist is baptizing near uh, Anon. And the gospel writer John says he's doing that because water was plentiful there. He needed to go to a place where there was a lot of water. Even in the Didache, an early church document, uh, the instructions from about the second, third century are to baptize primarily in running or living water, which is a river. That's the, the precedent we see in scripture in the early church is one of immersion under water. Now, one of the main issues that comes up here, and this is where we're almost out of this technical element of the sermon 
but it's important to understand, this is the last part of our understanding what baptism is, that is, where does it come from? Where does baptism come from? In fact, where does it come from in Scripture? Uh, it's not something that simply pops up in the New Testament. It's something that has its foundations throughout the Old Testament as well. And many believe that the Old Covenant sign of circumcision is the parallel to baptism. If you remember, uh, God commanded Abraham to circumcise his children. And then that became a part of the sign of the covenant so that Israel, all of the males were circumcised and their children were circumcised. And the thought is that baptism should therefore be given to children as well. Now, I would say baptism does have a connection to circumcision, but I would say its connection is actually more closely to the heart of circumcision in the Old Testament, which is the circumcision of the heart that is spoken of through the Old Testament. So, for example, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah says in chapter 4 to his people Israel, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts. That's what he's saying. It's a metaphorical language, quite a graphic metaphorical language. In Jeremiah 9, 25 to 26, God himself is speaking and he says, the days are coming when I will punish those who are circumcised merely in flesh. For the house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. That's the issue. Sure, you're keeping the covenant of circumcision, but that's not the point. The point is to go deeper so that your hearts would be circumcised. This is part of God's purpose in physical circumcision to show the spiritual reality that something must be cut off, namely our flesh. Our sin must be cut off so that we can truly serve Yahweh. So if we come all the way to the New Testament, Paul says in Romans 2 that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. That's what he says. The physical sign of circumcision was pointing to a deeper reality of how God desired hearts that were truly for him. That's the picture of circumcision. And so Paul says this in our first passage in Colossians 2. Paul actually very clearly lays this out for us in Colossians 2 from verse 11. So do turn there in your Bibles and read from Colossians 2. Paul says, In Christ, in Him, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That is a spiritual circumcision. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So through Christ's atoning work, through his death and resurrection on the cross, through what he came to do to redeem us, a spiritual circumcision occurred. That's what he's saying, a circumcision made not with, our, not with hands. It's not like the old covenant circumcision. Christ has done something far more wonderful than that. Notice in verse 13 of Colossians 2, Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Clearly, uncircumcision is capturing this idea of being dead in sin. That had to be solved to come to Christ. 
So Christ made a circumcision not made with hands. He takes our sin upon himself and it is punished in him. And notice Paul says that by faith we are raised through Jesus Christ. So the clear picture here is that this spiritual circumcision that Christ has brought about is one that is inextricably linked to faith to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not a vicarious faith here. No, Paul is saying through your faith, trusting in Jesus Christ, that is what raised you from the dead in that sense. Faith is inextricably linked from this spiritual circumcision. And this is the beauty of the uh, transformation from the old covenant to the new covenant. The old covenant was one of uh, physical promises. So the physical sign of circumcision was given by physical descent, by physical birth, so that the children of the promise are given that physical sign. Whereas in the new covenant, the spiritual circumcision of which baptism most closely corresponds with is based upon spiritual birth. It's based not upon physical birth, but upon the reality of spiritual birth, where we see that spiritual birth is that which produces faith to trust in Jesus Christ. So this is the foundation of the promise here. The foundation of baptism is that it does have its roots in the Old Testament, but the, the picture of circumcision was always pointing to this circumcision of the heart to this idea of our flesh, our sin nature being cut off. And in Christ, that is how it occurs. And it is inextricably linked to faith in Jesus Christ. To those who consciously repent and turn to Jesus Christ, they receive this circumcision. So baptism is therefore given to those based on spiritual birth, which are those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Now, This is the background of baptism, ordained by Christ, administered through the church, given to those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ. And this baptism is the necessary outward symbol that someone has indeed received the cleansing and forgiveness that is only found in Jesus Christ. So we, of course, say baptism itself does not save anyone explicitly, but baptism is the necessary symbol that follows salvation, that is the the necessary and logical response to our profession of faith in Christ, baptism comes. It is the necessary symbol that salvation has come. So here's where we must look at the symbolism of baptism, and we're going to see five pictures that we see in baptism. The first picture that we see in baptism is that baptism is a picture of the death and resurrection of Christ, the act of going under the water. Being immersed in water is, of course, a picture of the death and burial of Christ. So Paul says in Colossians 2, having been buried with him in baptism, or in Romans 6, we were buried with him in baptism, by baptism into death. It is a picture of the death of Christ going under the water. So in order to bring about this spiritual circumcision that was foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament that we've just seen, in order to bring that about, a death had to occur. A death had to occur because the root cause of this metaphorical flesh that the Bible talks about, the root cause of that is sin, and the penalty of sin is death. So a death had to occur for us to be circumcised in that sense, for us to be saved. A death had to occur 
And in order to redeem us from the penalty of sin, Jesus then took on death. He entered fully into death. He did that through the humiliation and suffering of the cross. What a death to die, the death of the cross. So going under the water in baptism is a picture of his death and subsequent burial. And as we come up from the water, it is a picture of his resurrection coming out of the water. It's a picture of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So Paul says in Colossians 2.12, we were buried with him in baptism in which we were raised together with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. It is a picture of the resurrection of Christ in order to demonstrate that Jesus had the full power of life and death and that his sacrifice was indeed sufficient to purchase us. He rose from the dead. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. But with the resurrection, we have all of the hope We need baptism paints for us this glorious picture of the Christian hope that death is not the final word. Christ has risen from the dead. So there is resurrection life so that for us, for we as followers of Jesus, death is merely the entrance to the fullness of our inheritance. That is the wonderful hope that we have. So baptism is, of course, a picture, first of all, of the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. Secondly, baptism is a picture of our union with Christ, or you might say of our identification with Christ. So in both Colossians 2 and Romans 6, the the wording that you'll notice here is that we are buried with, or we are raised with. It's one word just in the original language, which is combining the two. It's this idea of a collective burial or a collective raising from the dead. It's used when relatives are buried uh, next to other relatives. And in that sense, they're buried together with those relatives. So in Romans 6, 3, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We identify with him. We were baptized into his death in the sense that we have a union with him. We identify with the death of Christ in that as we trust in him, we have also died to our old self. So Paul says in Romans 6, in verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. That's an outstanding statement there. We were crucified with him. How were we crucified with him? Well, in his death, we also died. We died to our old self. That old self is crucified. So that is a beautiful picture in baptism is you go under the water. It is your public declaration of allegiance to Christ so that just as he died, we have died to our old self. We're dead to our old self. And as we are united to him in his death, we are therefore united to him in the newness of life. The identification continues. So Paul says in Romans 6, 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Baptism represents this intimate union with Christ. So Paul says in Galatians 3, 27, as many as you who were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ, which is him saying you've been clothed in Christ. You've been clothed in a beautiful, righteous garment. The sinful garment that we were all clothed in has been stripped away 
by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And he has brought us into himself so that we would be clothed in righteousness. And the picture we should have there isn't so much of Christ handing out a beautiful garment of saying, take off that filthy rag. Here's a beautiful garment. Rather, the picture we should have of our union with him is of Christ bringing us into his garment, bringing us into himself. We are clothed in that way because we are, we are clothed in Christ. That is the union that we have. And this is why we can have absolute assurance of the Father's full pleasure upon us because we have been brought into Christ, clothed in His robe of righteousness, so that the Father looks upon us and sees us in His Son. He sees not only us as forgiven of all of our sins, but as though we have done everything right because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. We've been clothed in these beautiful garments. And so the Father looks upon us and sees the Son. So baptism is this picture of our union with Christ. Thirdly, baptism is a picture of our purification. Water is naturally a picture of purification. Water uh, cleanses, perhaps not uh, Lake Tuggeranong water, but certainly other waters of greater quality. Uh, it is a picture of purification. It's a beautiful thing to be uh, bathing in crystal clear springs. And this is a picture we ought to have as the believer is plunged under the water. It is a symbol of the purification of our sins where they are washed in the pure blood of Jesus Christ. And this was the promise from Yahweh through the prophet Isaiah where he says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Well, how is it that the permanent stain of our sin that had dealt us with a terminal blow, how is it that that could be washed and made white? It is only through the pure, innocent blood of Jesus Christ. And this is the picture we ought to have in the waters of baptism. The waters that Christ leads us to are full of such purity that even the most heinous of sins, even the most grotesque of sins, to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, the waters that Christ leads us to are more pure than the wickedness of the most heinous of sins. That is how pure the blood of Christ is. And an aspect of this purification that Peter speaks about in 1 Peter 3 is where our, our consciences are purified. And so in 1 Peter 3, Peter talks about this and uh, he talks about how Baptism corresponds with this aspect of the flood, which we'll get to very soon. But he specifically says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, we'll get to that, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. So he's saying it doesn't actually save you as, as though uh, baptism itself is that which is removing the sin. But he says, as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your conscience, quite simply, is your ability to know right from wrong in very simple terms. And so an aspect of the purification that Peter speaks about here is where our consciences are actually purified so that we are no longer condemned by our inability to do what is pleasing to God. Because in our natural self, we cannot do what is pleasing to God. Isaiah says even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Before him, they're tainted by sin. 
But Peter says here that baptism is like an appeal to God for a good conscience. What's he saying there? He's saying that sin so stains us, sin so stains our consciences, that even though we have the objective truth of God's law, even though everyone has that, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness so that the good we know we ought to do, we do not do that. We are corrupted by nature. But Peter says here that there is a purification that has been brought about by Jesus Christ, which actually cleanses our consciences. It cleanses our consciences so that although we struggle with sin, we can know and do what is pleasing to God. We can actually know and do what is pleasing to God. Because the things that we now do, we do in Christ. They're not done. We've been removed from the flesh. It's been cut off and stripped away. We've been brought from the flesh into the spirit that is in Christ. And so now the things that we do, we do in Christ. So yes, all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before God, but that is talking about our natural self. We cannot do a single thing that is worthy of God, whereas the things that we do now as those who have been purified in Christ, we do as those who have been clothed in these righteous garments, as those who are in Christ. We've been washed, so we have the ability to do what is pleasing to God. We have the ability to honor Him. Our consciences have been cleansed. So baptism is a picture of the purification that comes about through this so that we are purified in our consciences. We know the good that we ought to do and we have the ability to do the good that we ought to do, though we are still affected by the presence of sin. Fourthly, baptism is a picture of our freedom from judgment. If we stay in this passage here, we won't bother touching uh, verse 19 Uh, We'll skip over that, but let's uh, look at this context here. Peter actually says baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience, and he bases this in the example of the flood. So the flood, of course, where God, as his judgment upon the world, uh, flooded the world so that everyone died. All of the wickedness in that sense was purged. The only ones who were spared were eight people, Noah and his family. And Peter, interestingly, says baptism corresponds to this. Literally says baptism is the antitype of this. So there's something about the flood that is connected with baptism. And the picture that we're meant to see here is that of being spared from God's judgment. Baptism in going under the water and coming through is a picture of us being spared from God's judgment because this is what we saw in the flood. God judging a wicked people, wiping out the whole earth apart from these eight people. And the word Peter uses in 1 Peter 3.20 is that they were saved, rather they were brought safely through baptism. Now you would think that the word that Peter would use would be they were saved from the water. It seems most logical to say, to look at the flood and say, well, they were saved from the water because the water was that which killed everyone. They were saved from the water. But Peter says they were saved through the water, which I think is the picture that he wants us to have is this idea of coming through the waters 
on the other side to God's mercy. And so likewise, baptism is this picture of coming under the water and passing through judgment as your judgment is placed upon Jesus Christ so that as you come up out of the water, it is a picture of passing through the judgment because the beautiful reality for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ is that they have been freed from the judgment of God. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The judgment has been handed down in Christ. We are in Christ in that sense we have passed through the waters of judgment. And that is the picture that we have in baptism, a picture of our, by the mercy of God, freedom from judgment. And finally, our last picture is that of true conversion. Baptism is a picture of true conversion. We live in a culture that still makes it, as much as our culture is changing, we have to admit we live in a culture that still makes it easy to profess to be a follower of Jesus. Many people do not possess their profession, but it's quite easy to profess to be a follower of Jesus because if you can tone down your language and not be all that uh, zealous for Christ, then you can fit in with the rest of the crowd. Or if you're in a church environment that prizes shallow entertainment over costly discipleship, then it is still quite easy to say that you're a follower of Jesus. So often you have many people who profess to follow Jesus, but there is nothing different about their lives. Nothing different at all from anyone else. But look at the dramatic change that we have in the picture of baptism. It's a picture of death to life. A picture of union with Christ's death to walk in newness of life. Paul says this in Romans 6. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. That's the massive transformation. He's saying you've been brought from death to life. Rising from the waters is a picture of us now walking in the newness of life, which is meant to be walking in a manner worthy of the new life we have in Christ. So baptism is, of course, not for imposters. It's a terrifying thing to be baptized and like Simon the magician in Acts 8, to simply want it for impure reasons. Baptism is meant to be the symbol of what has truly occurred internally, and that should be manifest externally through a transformed life. Now, we must be careful not to primarily measure the transformed life simply by the difference from our old self to the new self, though there's an element of truth in that. Of course, our life should be different, but lest we think that Transformed lives can only come from crack addicts to Christ followers as though there has to be some massive change. The primary measurement that we ought to have of a transformed life to demonstrate that there has been transformation is how closely aligned our new self is with Jesus Christ, with the likeness of Christ. This is the measurement of transformation, how close our new self is to that of Christ. We are meant to be Christ-like. 
so that whether you come to the Lord at five years of age and you never tangibly fall off the straight and narrow, your life should be able to show the same level of transformation as that crack addict who came to Christ at 25 and has a miraculous transformation and still both demonstrate transformed lives because they are looking more and more like Christ. That's the measurement that we are to have. Our desires are meant to be more and more Christ-like. Our desires are meant to be toward putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Walking in the newness of life, our appetites are not supposed to be toward shallow frivolities, but to Christ and the glory of God. Our delight is to see the name of Christ magnified in every aspect of our lives. And so baptism becomes this picture, this beautiful picture of the reality of the transformation from death to life, from the old self to the new self, from sinful desires to godly desires, from a life full of death and decay to a life full of joy and this abundant life that is found in Christ. And this picture of baptism being brought under the water and up out of the waters is this picture of the reality of what God has done by His Spirit in our lives to transform us. Not simply once, but in a life of transformation so that as we, as those who follow Jesus, continue to follow him, our lives are looking more and more Christ-like. And so this is a wonderful reminder for perhaps many of us here who have been baptized, who have been walking with Jesus for many years, that we must not be complacent. Baptism is a picture of not only that initial transformation, that our lives ought to be continuously being transformed into the glory of God that we ought to continuously be renewing our minds, honing our appetites to make sure they are of Christ and not of the world, making sure that we are stirring one another on to that end. So these are the pictures that we see in baptism. Baptism is a picture of Christ's death and resurrection. It is a picture of our union with Christ. It is a picture of our purification It is a picture of our freedom from judgment and is a picture of our transformed lives. And that is, Lord willing, what we will see as we head down to Pine Island to see Michael baptized today. It is a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that through no merit of our own, we who were dead in the bottom of the ocean on the muddy floors, God in his mercy has come in. He has picked us up off the miry pit out of it. He has washed us clean. He has set our feet upon the rock. We have passed through the judgment of God. That judgment has been placed upon Jesus Christ. And by his blood, we have been cleansed of all unrighteousness, cleansed of all of our filth. And baptism is the tangible picture of that. And indeed, the command from Jesus to his church to administer to all of those who repent and trust in Jesus Christ.